Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Years ago, the great English evangelist Charles Haddon Spurgeon was walking with a friend, a friend of his through the, uh, the countryside of England, and he noticed up on top of a barn a weather vane that said, God is love. And Spurgeon remarked to his friend, he said, I don't like that. I don't like that message. He said, because uh, the wind changes, but God's love doesn't change. Well, he thought a weather vane, it it shouldn't have been on a weather vane. And his friend said, well, I think you're misreading that. He said, what it means is no matter how the wind blows, God is love. That's a truth we need to understand today. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter what the situation is, God is love. Love. This is what the people of Israel had to learn as, from the book of Hosea as we look at this. They needed to understand that even though God might punish them, even though God might, might uh, destroy them, He was still a God of love. Years ago, there was a song out that said, it was titled, Jesus Won't Let Go. And the word said this, no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, Jesus won't let go. And that's a truth we need to, need to understand. We've been looking at Hosea these last 11 weeks under the heading, God's Amazing Love. It's been a book of, of punishment, a, a book of, of a prophecy, a book of destroying a nation that had turned from God. But in the midst of it, God's love is going to shine through. So today we look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, as we look at these words under the heading, love that won't let go. Love that won't let go. And I have a typo on my screen. I want you to know that I know it's not W-A-N-T. It's W-O-N-T. But I typed it up really quick this morning, all right? Uh, I've been on a mission trip, and, you know, I, so I, I understand it's a typo, okay? Uh, I did go to college. I did get a seminary degree. Uh, it wasn't in grammar. It wasn't in English. But uh, I know it's love that won't let go, W-O-N apostrophe T. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Hosea 11, 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from the neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you, hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admah? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. 
They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. I'm going to give you four truths this morning that we glean from this passage of Scripture to help us kind of understand this, this love that won't let go. The first truth is, we're going to look at the nature of God's love. God's love is difficult for us to grasp. We don't really have an understanding of this love from our human perspective. After all, we say things like, I love Bluebell ice cream. I love my little dogs, Mala and Stella. Stella, I love my wife. Do I, do, do I compare? Is that the same type of love that I love Bluebell ice cream? I, I, I love my wife. Look, I might lay down my life for my wife. I ain't laying down my life for Bluebell ice cream, all right? Now, some of you might, but I'm not, Okay. Uh, the, the point is that we have a difficult this love. But not only that, we live in a, in a society that, that doesn't really grasp it as well because we're so frivolous with love. People fall in and out of love so quickly today that it's hard for them to understand a love that's constant. Even today, we, we have husbands and wives who will love one one another one week, one year, and the next year they're divorcing and separating. Divorce is at 50%. What happened? Did they fall out of love? What happened? They didn't really understand love. And then we have fathers and even mothers who abandon their children, and they will leave children wondering, does anybody really love me? And then we have a problem as a church trying to communicate to them about a father who loves them. We have a, a difficulty difficulty understanding this concept of love because we filter it through what we as a society, what we as a world communicate about love. So it's clouded by the world's perception. But God's love is different. Notice what it says. It's a relationship that He chose. Look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea through the words of God, he, he's picturing God as a father. And he goes out and he finds a boy and he calls that boy his son. He said, you're my son and I love you. It's all God's doing. We have an election coming up here. This election term is what it's talking about. God elected these individuals. It's, it's a, a, an election is a summon into a relationship. So God came to Israel and he summoned them into a relationship with him. Look, he could have chose any people. He's God. He does not have to operate any specific way. He could have chose Egypt with their vast history and their culture. He could have chose them. He could have chose Assyria who had the might, the mighty military might. And through them he could have conquered the worlds, the nations, and caused people to submit to the military power of Assyria. But he didn't do that. What did he do? He chose a slave people. He chose people that were destined to be slaves. God chose Israel simply because He loved them. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. This is later used of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Out of Egypt. But no sooner had God called them out of Egypt, called them into relationship with him, that they begin making allegiances with others. 
They refuse to respond to the kindness and the love of the Father. Verse 2 talks about, he said, the more I called Israel, it's a constant calling. I called them constantly into a relationship with me. I called them many times into that relationship. And every time I did an act of kindness, I repeated it for them to bring them back into a relationship with me. But they refused to respond. They began making allegiances with other entities, with other countries. And for Israel, it was entity with God of Baal, with the Canaanite God. And they refused to respond to the kindness of the Father. He called them many times. He called them into that relationship with Him. And that would make his, he wanted them to make his relationship in the present, not just a remembrance of what they did in the past. But God had a plan for Israel. God had a plan. But Israel refused to follow the plan that God had for them and chose to make their own way. And one of the truest marks of love and greatness is tolerance of a weaker person. You know, patient kindness and tender care are godlike qualities. That's how we see it in God. Verse 3 is a great verse. One person wrote this verse like this. He goes, it was I who taught my little son to take his first steps. If he fell and hurt his knees, it was I, his father, who kissed him better. How many of us can't relate to that? I don't know how many times my little children would come up to me when they fell and scraped their knees all the time. And they'd come up to me and say, Daddy, kiss it and make it better. Kiss it and make it better. God said, I was the one who kissed their hurts. I was the one who comforted them. I was the one who knelt down and cradled them in their arms when they were hurting, when they were struggling. I was that kind of father to them. But yet they chose to abandon me. He uses another analogy in verse 4. He said, I led them with cords of human kindness with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. He said, in contrary to a, to a ruthless taskmaster who puts the yoke upon the oxen's neck and forces the oxen to go where he wants them to go, God says, I took it off of you. I removed it. And not only that, I bent down and I fed you out of my own hand. The point that he's trying to say, he said, God says, I came into relationship with you. I called you into relationship with me, but I'm not going to force you to follow me. I'm not going to force you to obey me. I want it to be voluntary. I wanted you, want you to do it because you know that I love you, because you know that I care for you, and you know that I have your best interests at heart. But I'm not going to force you to do it. I want you to do it because you love me. How many of us parents want our children to follow us, to respect us? Why? Because we love them, not because they fear us. Because they know that we have their best interests at heart. It's the same way with God. It's the same way. Listen, God has chosen us, my friends. I don't know why, but He has chosen us. He's chosen us and He loves us with an unfailing love. And He wants to lead us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He wants to do that. And He will continue to sustain our steps he will direct our walk, and He will lift us up when we fall. That's the nature of God's love. It's a love that we can't even begin to understand or comprehend. Let's look at the second truth. 
God's love is revealed through discipline. Every parent knows that sometimes children have to be disciplined. Sometimes I think they need to be disciplined a little bit more than we do discipline them. We, we cut them some slack. Uh, sometimes we have to do that. I remember this, this week at, uh, at camp, hey, look, our youth were phenomenal. They were phenomenal. You know what the problem was? Not, not camp and mission. You know what the, the problem was with the mission trip? It was the adults, not the youth. We didn't have enough of them, enough, enough adults. But uh, our youth have a tendency to stay up a little later at night, uh, you know, and then they, they kind of want to maybe sleep uh, sometimes in the morning. And so I caught a couple of them sleeping and, you know, now, I didn't, you know, I didn't get on to them. Just when it came time, they didn't miss lunch, by the way. When it came time to, to, to come to lunch, I said, hey, I'm going to give you all a little, uh, a little statement here, and y'all tell me what it means. I said, if you're going to fly, if you're going to scream with the, if you're going to fly with the owls at night, you're going to scream with the eagles in the morning. I said, what does that mean? It means if we're going to stay up late, we've got to get up early. I said, that's right. That's right. I said, remember, somebody paid for your way to go. Don't take advantage of it. Don't take advantage of it. Just a little, a little nudge of discipline that way. I know I'm not their daddy, but I'm their pastor. And when, in the absence of mommy and daddy, I am their mama and I am their daddy. All right? I should have told them, who's your daddy? That's what I should have told them. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, every wise parent knows that sometimes a child has to be disciplined. You have to prod them in the direction they need to go. God had to punish Israel. When people have been blessed, when people have been loved, and they refuse to respond to the love and the blessing that God bestows upon them, conflict results. There's going to be conflict. Look at verse 7. He says, my people are determined to turn from me. This is the nature of Israel. They have determined, they have, they have said, we are going to choose a different path. But I want you to notice something about this verse. It's extremely significant. Notice the first part, my people. You catch that? You might want to underline that. That is so pivotal to understanding it. Even though they've rebelled, even though they've said they have determined to go a different way, God still calls them my people. My people. I always tell my children, listen, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say that will ever stop you from being my child. Nothing. I will always love you. I may not like what you do, but I will always love you. This is what's going on in this passage. These are my people. This is not just anyone. This is the people of God. This is the people he chose. And they had all the amenities, all the advantages that every other nation did not have. They had God's law. They knew what was expected of them. They had God's prophets that continued pouring out God's truth upon these individuals. They had a proven history with God. They understood what was required of them as people of God. They were God's people in every way. But somehow something went wrong with them. David would say, we were born with a bentness within us. We were crooked at birth. There was something that wasn't right with the people of Israel. They were determined to go their own way and do their own thing. Man, we, we understand that, do we not, with our own children? 
They're determined to do their own thing and go their own way. It does not matter what they turn to. It matters what they turn from. It doesn't matter that they turn these other gods, these other prophets, these other leaders, that they turn from God. And that's the very nature of it. You turn from God to something else, and when you turn to something else, you turn your back on God. And you turn your back on His ways and His truth. And you deliberately make a decision to go a different direction. And the further you get from God, guess what happens? The deeper you go into sin. And the deeper you go into sin, the further you are from God. It's cyclical. You can't get out of it. Israel had adopted a lifestyle that went against God. But the prophets urged them. The prophets told them, come back. Come back to God. Come back to God. Later on, Jesus will say to the church, he said, come back to your first love. You've abandoned your first love. Come back. Come back to your first love. The prophets urged them to change their way, and they did exactly the opposite of what they did. So God had to bring discipline. He's going to leave them alone through the decisions that they made. He loves them. He said, you chose this, I'm going to let you do it. It's kind of like what happened in Romans chapter 1 when Paul said that he gave them over to their sins. This is what God's doing. He said, I'm giving you over. You chose this path. And because I love you, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. The King James Version uses a good Baptist word here. I don't think King James was a Baptist. Uh, but uh, it uses the word backsliding. Am I right? King James says backsliding, right? This means yes. This means no. Okay. Yeah, it says backsliding. That's a good Baptist word. We love to backslide. We'll use that term. We use that term for somebody who's missed Sunday school. Well, you backslider. Well, well how is your backslidden self today? You know, uh, well, we use that term. We use it for anybody that's missed Sunday school a couple of weeks. There's somebody that hasn't been in church in years. They're backsliding. How many times do we, do we pray? Uh, I haven't heard it much here, but how many times have we prayed in the past? Oh, Lord, just heal their backslidden hearts. Lord, bring them back from their backslidden nature. Listen, we should never minimize that word backslidden. We trivialize it. God does not trivialize it. For Him, this idea of backsliding means God's going to withdraw His presence from them. Wow. You see, we're pretty flippant with it when we use it. But for God, this idea of being backslidden was terrible. Perhaps that's why it is that so many believers are worse than non-believers. Because God has withdrawn His presence from them. He's not placing His hand of blessing upon them. He's not encouraging them and loving them and pushing them. He said, you chose that path, I'll let you go. Let you go. Here's the good news though. You want some good news? Here's the good news. God does not turn away from us. We may turn away from God, but He does not turn away from us. And what you will discover is the minute you turn back to God, He's right there. Right there waiting for you. It's kind of like the old picture a preacher used to give us. He said, 
here you are running, 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 running from God. And the minute you turn around, God's right there in your face. God does not let go of us. Now, He may use your circumstances. He may use the choices that you make to bring you back. To bring you back. And when you're going through those difficult times, you need to remember that it's not God that pulled away from you. It's you who pulled away from God. I remember the old story of the the older couple had been married 45, 50 years, and he was sitting on this side of the car driving, and she was way over here on the other side. And she was sitting there saying, Oh, I remember when we first fell in love that I used to sit next to you and you'd put your arm around me and you'd tell me all these sweet things. And, and you know, I, I really miss those days. And he looked over to her and he said, I haven't moved. Listen, listen. When you find yourself out of the presence of God and when you find yourself not experiencing the blessings of God's life, He has not moved. You're the one that's moved. You're the only time you get back in. Can I just tell you some practical ways to get back into it? You ready? I, I mean, we're a list. I'm going to give you a list. Here it is. And this is not even in my notes. This is what's so good about it. It must be a Holy Spirit thing, I'm hoping. Number one, get in church. Get in church. <laughs> you know, yeah, I tell you, you're not going to find God out there underneath the mesquite tree or the oak tree or out by the lake. He made the lake. He made the oak mesquite tree. He made the oak tree. But you know what he really makes? The people God. The people of God. Get in church. Get in church. You'll find God. He's here. Get in church. Second, pray. Pray. Get in touch with God. Daily communication. You know what prayer is? It's just simply a conversation with God. It's like you and me sitting down talking. Just tell God your day. Hey, God, I'm, I'm struggling. Well, let, let's talk about it. Tell me what's going on now. Talk to God. Third, get into His Word. If you want to know what God wants for your life, Read his word. I was talking to one of my good brothers this morning. He goes, I don't understand. I said, keep reading it. Just keep reading it. God will reveal it to you in time. If nothing else, you're at least learning what, what it's saying. Get in God's word. So go to church. Pray. Get into God's word. Finally, let me, let me, let me, let me now, we're, now we're really going to get down to the brass tacks. Give. Give. I probably should have put that one first. But give. You know why? Because the minute you don't give to God, you're telling God, I don't trust you. God tells you. He talks more about giving in the Bible than anything. Jesus talks more about giving than he does heaven and hell. It's probably because he knows it's hell getting people to give. He says, where your heart is, that's where your money's going to be. Give. Because you, he's wanting you to get to the point in your life that, okay, God, I know your word says I've got to, and I'm not talking about giving a dollar. I'm not giving 10% of your income. 10% of your income. Why? Because the minute you're doing that, you say, God, I trust you. I trust you. About 80% of the people in this church do not trust God, you backsliders. You don't trust God. If you can't trust God with your finances, how are you going to trust him for eternity? It all belongs to him. That's four ways you could do it. Fifth, serve. Serve, serve, serve. I don't care how old you are or how crippled you are, how maimed you are, how stupid you are. Anybody can serve God. 
You just got to do it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I said, find something. Man, you can sit around your house and find something to do. Surely you can come to church and find something to do. There's always something to do. So, go to church. Pray. Study your Bible. Give. Serve. Five things you can do to get you back where it is. And what you will discover, just like the prodigal son discovered when he went back to his father, he was there. He was there. Third, the secret of God's love. Now we expect the, condemn, the condemnation to go on. We, we expect the judgment to go on. That God's going to lay out the judgment upon Israel. But notice what he says in verse 8. How can I give you up, Eve? He begins to ask a series of questions. Actually, in the Hebrew, they're not questions, they're exclamation points. And what you hear is God is having a dialogue with himself. He, he's talking to himself. And now we have a way of understanding God in human terms. And so this is what we'll see. We'll see mixed emotions going on here. Can God still give, be just and still show mercy? Can he still do that? So what we see going on in verse 8 is a battle of the law and a battle of grace. God says the law says I must do this, but grace says I want to do this. And so God is in conflict with him, himself. He's battling with himself. We see goodness battling with punishment. We see all of this taking place. The Old Testament talks many times about God repenting or God changing his mind. Listen, that's just a way that we can understand it. It's putting it in a way that we can try to grasp what's going on. But what's so cool about the book of Hosea, about this particular passage, is that, that it's so awesome because it's really revealing an inner conversation that God is having, and we get the eavesdrop on what's going on with God. And what, he's, he's sitting there, and he says, he says in verse 8, My heart is changed within me. My heart has changed within me. To the Hebrew people, the heart was the center of emotions. So when God is saying, my emotions are changed within me. Everything that I am is changed within me. He could not bear. He could not bear the prospect of Israel's destruction. So there had to be a sincere change for him. His mercy speaks out. And his mercy prevails. And we see the tenderness of the Father's love overcame the severe verdict of the judge's sentence. The judge says, guilty, condemned. The Father says, but I love them and I want to show them mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. No matter what they did, no matter how bad they were, God still loved them. He still loved them. He made his decision. In verse 9, he said, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. God says it's time to act. God's grace has transcended Israel's guilt and has compelled him to spare Israel from destruction. Now, he did not revoke the punishment. He's still going to punish them, but he's given them a hope of return. He says, you're going to be punished, but there's hope of return. Your sin is going to be punished, but your nation is not going to be destroyed. How? How can God do that? We find it in this passage. We find it 
And what he says in verse 9, for I am God and not man. That is a great theological truth. Aren't you glad that he's not like man? He is God, and He is not man. So He will not react like a man. He will not respond like a person. He will respond as God, who knows all, sees all, and understands all. Who knows our hearts and knows our minds better than we know our hearts and we know our minds ourselves. He is God, and He is not man. We cannot fully understand how that works. Paul says in the, in the New Testament, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Is what it says in the New Testament. Here's what it means for us. We can never out-sin God's grace. Never. So don't even go out there and try. Some people, I think they want to try. They just want to see how far God will extend His grace. It goes beyond our ability to understand there's nothing, hear me on this, my friends, there's nothing you can do, you have ever done, or even thinking that you can do, that you will ever be able to cause God not to love you. Nothing. He sent His Son to die upon a cross to show you how much He loves you, how much He cares for you. And we never understand this idea of grace until we see the Word become flesh and dwell among us and go to the cross for our sins. We would never understand this idea of grace. In Jesus, in Jesus, we see the justice of God and we see the mercy of God blended in love for you and I. Upon Jesus, all the justice of God was revealed, and in Jesus, all the mercy and grace of God was revealed. And that He paid the price that you could never pay for the sins that you've committed. And He did it in Jesus. So when we look at this word, it's, it's not a, a message of doom, but it's a word of salvation. No person can fathom the depth of God's mercy. We love as humans, and our love is, is not infinite. Our love is finite. Our love is, it depends upon other people loving us in return. We get something back. But God loves us, God. And His love is perfect in every way. We may lack the knowledge of that, but we accept it by faith. Never have we loved at such a great cost at what God loved us. Never have we sacrificed to forgive as God has forgiven us. We can never grasp the immensity of the love that God has for us. And I'm reminded of the old hymn we used to sing many years ago. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how He could love me a sinner condemned unclean. Unclean. Fourth truth, the goal of God's love. God's love has a goal. It has a purpose. The scene dramatically changes. God has moved from judgment and He's looking ahead. Prophetically, He's looking ahead. The nation of Israel has been punished. They've been sent into exile. They've been punished. The people have been scattered. But God envisions a new exodus. 
He envisions something new happening. The discipline for the nation of Israel is over. Now they are returning and they will be his people once again. Now Hosea never says that Israel escapes punishment. They're still punished. Sin must be dealt with. Sin will always be dealt with. They had refused to listen to him even though he pleaded with them to turn back. But instead of talking about the punishment, he doesn't even talk about the punishment or even when this turning back will happen. God talks about the promises that will happen when they return to him. He says they're going to be restored. They're going to be brought back. No details are given. He's more concerned with the results of the process. We see this in verses 10 and 11. The very first part of verse 10 says it. They will follow the Lord. Punishments worked. Discipline worked. When they come back, instead of being determining to run away from God, they will follow the Lord. The Holy One will be there. He will roar like a lion. Except this time it's not a a lion about to pounce on his prey. It's a lion calling his cubs back. Calling them back to be with him. And they will come. It says his children will come. Trembling and coming from various parts of the world. Wherever they are. They'll come from many directions. Though they had lived in sin and rebellion, now they will be brought back to live in relationship with Him. They were sitting in captivity. And they read this. They read this prophecy once again. And it brought hope. It brought hope to them. I was watching Star Wars, The Last Jedi, last night. I just wanted to veg out last night. I, I had a tough week. I said, I was going to sit here and veg out in front of the TV. And the thing about Star Wars, everything was in chaos. Chaos. They needed hope. They needed hope, so they had to find the last Jedi. They had to find Luke Skywalker. And he said, I won't come. I won't come. I've already done that. I've done that. And he said, but you don't understand. You will give us hope. You will give us hope. Imagine the people of Israel living abandoned. They're no longer living in the presence of God. They're, they're away and all this stuff. And they open up the word, the scroll, and the prophets begin to read. We'll come back. There's hope. There's hope. Let me tell you something, my friends. What we see in the world today is not the end. We look around us and we see chaos and confusion. Matter of fact, I'm about to begin a new series called Timeless Truths and Troubling Times. Timeless Truths and Troubling Times. This is not the end. This is not the end. There is something better waiting for us. We cannot fathom it. We cannot understand it. But it's true. We may be living in times of chaos. We may be living in times of trouble and confusion on every corner. But I want you to know, this is not the end. God has a plan. God has a purpose for each one of us. And He wants to call you into relationship with Him. And when He does that, God's love will never let you go. He will never let you go. Even though you may be living in sin, you may be living in rebellion, 
God's love is true and God's love is constant. Do you know that love in your own life? Do you know the love that God has bestowed upon you in Jesus Christ? This morning, we're going to be an opportunity to respond. An opportunity to respond to what you've heard today, last week, maybe through a song that was sung, a prayer that was prayed, a scripture that was read. Maybe God is calling you into a loving relationship with Him. Maybe you're, you know Him, but you're kind of like the rebellious child and you've kind of strayed away. God says, come home. Come home and find rest and find comfort in my arms. Whatever decision you make, we're going to invite you to come. As Kip's going to come and lead us in a song, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Would you stand, stand with me? As I lead us in a time of prayer, Father God, we come before you this morning thanking for this time that you've given to us to gather together, to worship, to pray, to give, Father, to hear your word. God, I thank you for your love that will not let go. Father, help us to cling to you. Father, help us just to hold on to you, Father, so we will not let go ourselves. Because, God, we need you. We are so prone, Father, to be distracted by the world around us, by the situations going on around us, Father, that we look away. And, Father, when we look away, we begin to move that direction. Oh, God, help us to cling to you. Help us to cling to you. As the old song says, Father, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We cling to your love. We cling to your grace. Father, help us. Don't let us go. We give you this time, Father, for you to touch hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.